Welcome, Beata, to our podcast. Um, I'm just going to share some information with the world that I'm Nicolette Richet, and I'm the host of this podcast, the Eat Real to Heal podcast. And today on our show, we have Beata Bishop. She was a journalist. Um, she is a lifelong advocate of food as medicine and Beata is here today to share her heroin journey of using food as medicine to heal herself from cancer and all the work that she's been doing in the world since then to teach people that food is medicine. So welcome Beata to our Eat Real to Heal podcast. Thank you. Thanks. So Beata, can we share with the world your age, how old you are right now? Must we? <laughs> I think yes. they're impressed. In two months' time, I'll be 95. 95 years old. And how are you feeling at 95 years old? Well, my real self is permanently 37 years old. My body is uh, considerably older, but it's not 95. I'm <laughs> That's amazing. And you certainly don't look or sound like most 95-year-olds that I know. Um, Beata, you're, the reason I wanted to have you on the show today is because I've been following you, your blog, the work that you're doing, and of course, your book. I read your book years and years ago when I first learned about the Gerson therapy, when I first met Charlotte Gerson um, mm -hmm. in San Diego, and she told everyone to read your book, and your book was outstanding, um, A Time to Heal. And your book is about when you were diagnosed with cancer, 19, was it 1980? 1979 was the first uh, diagnosis of melanoma, yes. And when can you tell us about how you first discovered it and share that story with what that was like? Because you were a journalist at that time and you were working, is that correct? Oh, yes, I was working. I was at the BBC, actually. And working as a journalist. And then yeah. how did you first know that you had melanoma? Well, there was this spot on my right leg, halfway between the ankle and the knee. It was, originally, it was just an ordinary brown spot like one has them anywhere. And then it became dark and it, it rose up and it was very ugly. So I, I knew that something was, was terribly wrong there. And I had a meeting with my with my doctor about something else and she looked at it and said I would see a dermatologist with that now so I said well yes I will she referred me I went to see this uh, dermatologist and he looked at it and said oh that's melanoma well I didn't know what melanoma was but I found out pretty soon after that I can tell you so that's how it all started and um immediately um, being referred to a surgeon and it has to be cut out and what is called as wide excision which means that they remove most of your leg you know they just leave enough for you to be able to walk so there was this uh, huge piece of my leg removed and skin graft and you name it it was hell and then, of course, I didn't realize that this was a total waste of time because um, cancer cells travel in the blood and the lymph. 
and it's okay, so you take out the tumor and you do nothing else, then it's going to come up somewhere else, which is exactly what it did. And, and at, you, at this time, Beata, did you know much, being a journalist, had you ever done any research or investigation around cancer or was this the beginning of understanding what cancer was and how it behaved well, in the body? The moment I knew what was the matter with me, I immediately started researching, of course. I mean, that's <laughs> it's as natural a reaction as breathing. And then I saw that it, it wasn't a very good thing to have. But I still didn't realize, and this is the tragic thing which upsets me, uh, that people think that cancer is, is a thing, that it's a tumor. It's not. The tumor is a symptom. Cancer is a process which is in the entire organism. And you remove the tumor, it'll come back somewhere else. Because why shouldn't it? It's never really gone away. Which is exactly what happened to me. Because um, a year later, it was in my right groin. And by that time, of course, I've, like a good journalist, I, I did all my research and I knew that this was very bad news. And uh, the surgeon, who was, by the way, a wonderful man, very humane, very kind. I, I can only speak in terms of high praise about him. But he was a surgeon, and surgeons want to cut. <laughs> That's what they, they can't do anything else. So he wanted to remove the secondary tumor and the lymph glands and whatever else. And that's when I said, ah, stop. Because if the first surgery didn't do the job, then the second one will simply make me even even weaker. And you can't slice a person like, like salami. I mean, it's, it's just, what, what about next? If it goes to my, my brain, are you going to cut my head off or what? So that's when I just said, uh, not yet, not yet. And then um, a friend of mine said, because I, I ran around to, to ask if anybody had any good ideas. And a friend said, well, you, you could try the, the Gerson therapy. And I said, the what? And nobody knew what it was. I bet. Yeah. And then, uh, and this is what's so miraculous, then I discovered that Dr. Gerson's granddaughter, Margaret, at the time was living in London. I went to see her immediately. Or rather, I rang her and she said, but first you read my grandfather's book and then come and see me. So I got hold of uh, Gerson's 50 cases and I never read so fast in my life. And then I went to see her, and she was very, very helpful and told me about the therapy. And I said, oh, that sounds so difficult, and what a pity you don't have a clinic. And she said, but we do. It's in Mexico. So, you see, one thing led to another. I then rang Charlotte, who asked me, about my white blood cells and fortunately I had the count and it was above 12 percent or whatever and she said fine you can come and so I decided to to do this uh, did I answer your question <laughs> yes you did so 
You know, so so many people now are being diagnosed. The rates are one in two people are now being diagnosed with cancer. Dr. Max Gerson, back in the 1920s and 30s, had said, if we don't change the way we eat, if we don't change the way we um, and stop using these pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers in the soil, these chemical fertilizers, we, he predicted that we would see these rates. But this is going back to like 1979, 1980. Um, were you scared to try something like this? And what were the, your friends and family telling you at this time when you decided to fly off to Mexico to do this therapy? Well, everybody thought I was stark raving mad to go to Mexico, which wasn't famous for its excellence in medical matters. But then, you see, if I make up my mind about something, I don't care if people think I'm mad. Perhaps I am mad. Okay, so that's my choice. <laughs> and I just said I'm going, which is what I did. And um, that was there for two months. And it was a revelation. Because... Um, well, God, you know, it's, it's almost as if it had been a hundred years ago. It's so far away. I now see how little I knew about the connection between food and, and health. I mean, look, I've been a vegetarian by that time for about 10 years. So I, I was aware of certain things, but not of everything. So I got what to make kind of can I jump in and ask you, what kind of vegetarian were you? And the reason I ask this is because so many people come to me and my clients come to me with an illness and a chronic disease or cancer and they say, oh, but I've been a vegan, I've been a vegetarian, um, I'm so healthy, I eat healthy, but there's a huge difference between Dr. Max Gerson's version of healthy and the rest of the world's version of healthy. What kind of vegetarian were you before you got diagnosed? Well, I didn't eat meat. <laughs> I, did did eat, I did eat I it did eat dairy. Mm -hmm. I ate yogurt and, and uh, cottage cheese and, and cheese and a couple of eggs a week, but I didn't eat anything with four legs. Or even two legs. <laughs> and did you eat processed food at that time, though, beyond the dairy? No, because I, I didn't like it. it uh, I, I knew that processed food was an awful lot of chemicals with a little bit of flour thrown in. So I, was, I, had, I had no illusions about that. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't. I didn't. I once tried to eat a McDonald's, and after one mouthful, I just said, no thanks. But that was just as an experiment. I didn't want to become a McDonald's eater. Anyway, now, when I went to Mexico, I was also suffering from early stage type 2 diabetes, and osteoarthritis in my hand which I inherited from my mother because she, she had it rather badly and I've been on the therapy for a short while and they tested my blood and urine and the diabetes was gone Wow! after how long? <laughs> two weeks <laughs> yeah, we and, and look at my hands look 
They're beautiful. Absolutely no arthritis anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So when I saw this, I thought, goodness, <laughs> there's something going on here. <laughs> so I was there for two months, and I must say the the clinic ran like clockwork. The juices arrived, and the coffee enema. The coffee arrived, and and the food was excellent. And it was a very cheerful place, which normally, if you have a lot of people together with cancer, it's, it's normally not very cheerful. And this was really good fun. A lot of nice people whom I met. So that was that. And of course, Charlotte, who was just unbelievable. <laughs> oh, what a lady. Yes, oh. she is quite the lady. And... Um, for anybody who's listening, um, it is March 25th, 2019, and Charlotte Gerson, who is Dr. Max Gerson's daughter, she just passed away on February 10th this year at one month shy of her 97th birthday. And so Beata was fortunate um, to have been one of the people who was taught by Charlotte Gerson, and then you became lifelong friends as well. Um, I had the privilege of being taught by Charlotte Gerson as well when I was in San Diego, and that was 11 years ago. And I'm sure Charlotte at that time, she truly was as young, I'm sure, as she was back in 1980 when you knew her, Beata. That woman had so much spunk and energy and feist in her. So it is tr it was truly a sad sad moment to learn that Charlotte had passed, but you are one of the people in the world who are so blessed to have been called, to, to be able to call her a really good friend and dear friend. So it's it was- very funny. You know, the first time I had a little conversation with Charlotte, I told her that I believed, <clears throat> being a psychotherapist by, by training, that uh, the psyche had a lot to do with uh, our state of health, and she said, oh, no, that's absolute nonsense. So I thought, well, now this is a subject which perhaps I had better avoid <laughs> because <laughs> I respected her enormously and I didn't want any arguments. And I knew what I knew, so I thought, okay, I respect her view and uh, just skip this subject. There are plenty of other subjects to talk about. And what about over the years? Did Charlotte ever change her mind on that? No, she always believed, yeah, food is food is definitely, um, and the chemicals in our body and the toxicity and the lack of nutrients. I know from the Gerson therapy that a deficiency in nutrients and too much toxicity in the body is the cause of disease. And it seems to me like your body also understood that quickly. But, but, wait a minute. When we wrote the book, Healing the Gerson Way, by the way, that title was mine. I, I suggested it. I'm very proud of that. You should be proud. There's, it's a great name. <laughs> there is a chapter, even two chapters in that book, which Charlotte and I wrote together. We were co-authors about the psychological aspect. So you see, over the years, somehow we managed to get together on that subject. She allowed me to have those chapters. <laughs> mm. Yes, and even in the Gerson, Healing the Gerson Way, they do talk about meditation and yoga. I think those are the chapters that you're referring to, are they not? That um, balancing out the body and shifting the stress and also is very important as well when you're healing. Now, 
it, when you were down in Mexico, so the juices were brought to you like clockwork um, every hour or so on the hour. You had an abundance of organic fresh food that's raw and it's cooked. Now, when you saw the kind of food that you were eating at the clinic, um, how did that differ from the food that you had been making at home prior to being diagnosed? Well, I realized that continuing at home in London would be extremely difficult. And please bear in mind that this was such a long time ago. Today, you walk into any supermarket in London and plenty of organic stuff. At the time, there wasn't any. Mm-hmm. Now, it so happened that Charlotte's daughter, Margaret, or Peggy, <clears throat> as she is widely known, um, lived in London. <coughs> And she had organized a young man, he was Irish actually, and he had a little van which was held together by string. If you looked at it, you just began to wonder how it was moving at all. Now this man went round small farms in the neighborhood of London where he knew that the farmers were too poor to buy chemicals, and therefore what they produced was organic (laughs) because it wasn't sprayed. And so he got together a number of small poor farmers and told them, you continue not to spray and I'll buy your stuff. And that's how Peggy, well, Peggy took it because she was healthy and she wanted to stay healthy. And that's how we had every week on Tuesday mornings, I think it was, this dear man appeared in his very rickety little little van, bringing bags of carrots and apples and lettuce and, well, whatever we needed. It was the only way to get organic at the time. You couldn't get it. Right. You see, so we really have come a long way. And I continued the therapy at home, and it was not easy, I can tell you. I needed help, obviously. Yes. Nobody can really do it single-handedly, patient. It's impossible. No, we definitely, it's really important for people to understand that they need help, especially when they're going through the healing reactions as well, because it's so important to keep juicing and eating and doing the coffee enemas, even when you go through the healing reactions. And now did you, how, and how long did you stay on the therapy again when you did it? Two years. And After my return. After my return from Mexico, it was another two years. And, and I was, at any point during that time, Beata, did you feel like you wanted to quit? Or for you, did you just have the mindset that you're going to do it for two years and you're going to stick to it? What was that like to keep doing it at that time? Well, I did it exactly as I was told. and And I was supervised by Charlotte, bless her heart, and she wrote me long letters and more or less telling me to behave myself, (laughs) not do anything naughty. And then, of course, um, Peggy was still around, so she helped me too. I felt very supported, but it was hellishly difficult, I can tell you. And getting the helpers was another problem because I needed young girls 
who have left school but wanted to make money in order to take a year off and go traveling. So I had to train each one separately and some were brilliant and some were so stupid that I remember going to the kitchen one day and my girl was standing there with a green pepper in her hand like that. She looked at it and she said, what's that? <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> so, I can imagine. <laughs> look, it was not easy, but I knew why I was doing it. I also realized that it's not enough to do it for a short while and then say, okay, I'm fine now. Because until you rebuild your liver and make it absolutely healthy and you get rid of all the toxins in your body, it will come back. So, yes, and it's true. People need to know that when they start the program and they start the therapy, and especially for things like type 2 diabetes and arthritis and chronic pain and depression, when they do the therapy, they see immediate results, actually, for those sorts of things. Um, and then they start to feel so good and their energy comes back. And it's important to know that people have to keep going for at least a year to two years, especially if you have cancer, you do it for longer if you've been diagnosed with cancer, because you do have to rebuild all parts of your body. So during this time, your cancer had returned, it was in your lymph, it was in your groin. What were your doctors saying at this time? Or did you just have no contact with your doctors at this time? Well, I was tremendously lucky because um, friends, friends, uh, etc., gave me the name of a doctor who was in private practice. And I thought I'll go and see him and find out if he is willing to monitor me because during this long process, I needed blood tests occasionally to see how I was doing. And anyway, with this sort of thing, you do need a doctor behind you to, to be there. So I went along to see this private doctor and I began to say that I was thinking of doing the Gerson therapy and he turned around and there was a bookshelf behind him and he took down Dr. Gerson's book and said, look, I have it here. <sighs> That's amazing. Oh, I was so happy. <laughs> and this wonderful man actually um, monitored me throughout the wow. two years. That is really amazing because it is scary to do it. And most of us, we rely on our doctors to be able to tell us what are the things to do for our health. Most people, you know, don't. When you said that researching is just like breathing, I think that applies to you because you're a journalist. Whereas for most people, researching is not like breathing. In fact, studies show something like. 80% of people never read a book after they graduate from university. So for people to start researching, even though we have a wealth of information, it's not like breathing to a lot of people. So they rely on their doctors for the answers. But what people don't realize is that medical doctors are not often researchers themselves. They 
you know, practice, they are told what medications to prescribe for the diseases, but they're not researchers. So you were so fortunate to have, it sounded like everything lined up. You had Margaret, who is Max Gerson's granddaughter, living close to you. You had Charlotte Gerson writing you beautiful letters. People would literally die to have Charlotte Gerson handwrite her letters now, I'm sure. Um, and then you also have a doctor who reaches behind and grabs a book, Dr. Max Gerson's book off the shelf. Like it sounded like you had everything line up. Um, you were a journalist, so you are a researcher already. So all of these factors came together. Um, yes. So so when you were being monitored, what were the doctors like? What was the doctor's feedback and thoughts as you were going through the therapy and he was checking you? Um, and what was happening to them? To, you had a mass in your groin as well. Well, first of all, we have to remember that melanoma can be extremely fast. Yes. And I remember when I was at the clinic in Mexico in the room next to me was a, an American lady with melanoma. She had 50 tumors, 5-0. So once it starts off, it can pop up anywhere. The fact that mine stopped with the one in my groin in itself was a very good sign. And um, I realized it was going to be a lengthy business. The fact that I was feeling better, I was looking better, and as I said, the diabetes had gone, the arthritis had gone. Now, if that didn't convince me that this therapy was working, then what would have convinced me? Yeah. <clears throat> so um, I just carried on with it. After the first year, I was able to to go down from five coffee enemas a day to four, and that sounded like heaven. Because believe me, well, Doing the full Gerson is a full-time job. It is. There's absolutely nothing you can do, even if you have paid help, as I did. The, the person who makes the juices, because you make one juice and you finish and you start on the next juice. So even so, it's um, extremely labor-intensive and very boring, <laughs> let me tell you, incredibly <laughs> boring. And that's why I wrote my book. In the second year, I was so bored I could have died. And because of the juices hourly, I couldn't get out much. Now, I happen to live in a very beautiful part of London, three minutes walk away from the River Thames. And so I could just go out for half an hour and walk around and look at the river and look at the trees and then rush back and have the next juice. It's not funny, <laughs> I can tell you. I also realized that once I had started, I had better continue. It would have been a total waste of time, effort, money. It's quite expensive to do this, you know. If I had stopped, so I didn't. And in the second year, under Charlotte's guidance, I was able to do a little bit less, one enema fewer, and then instead of 13 juices, uh, 11, and all these little, little easing episodes were like uh, being let out of prison. 
So, Beata, you are such a spokesperson for the Gerson therapy, but right now it sounds, I'm sure, to our listeners like, why would I do this? So you can't go out, I mean, really half an hour walks. It's so time consuming. It's hard. You need help. Um, You were bored out of your mind. So why did you do it? And people need to ask themselves that question. Why would you go down such a hard route um, for something like this? Well, that's a very good question. Why did I do it? Uh, I wasn't afraid of dying. That was no problem. It wasn't just, oh, please, please. No, I thought if I die, that's, that's fine. But I was 55 and full of life and full of ideas. And I still wanted to do things. I'm an activist. I'm still at 95, I'm still an activist. So what do you expect? <laughs> it's a habit <laughs> which I can't, <laughs> I can't get rid of. Um, I was a bit angry. I thought, well, if I have to die, fine. But, but why should I? You know, I still have other things to do. Now, we have an in-joke, person, persons, as we call ourselves. We have an in-joke, which is that Dr. Gerson looks down from heaven and sees a likely victim down there, grabs that person by the neck, and doesn't let go. Well, he sure grabbed me, <laughs> as you can see. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I was able to help an awful lot of people with my book. You did. Which has been translated into 10 languages by now. So I'm I'm paying back to the Gerson therapy what I received. That's the only way I can put it. (laughs) And that is so beautiful because I had been teaching the Gerson therapy for about five or six years. And my husband who is wonderful and he's 100% backs up, you know, all of my dreams and um, my mission and our purpose. And when I said I want to start a restaurant based on a lot of the Gerson principles, so all organic food, all plant-based, he said, let's do it. But, you know, he couldn't let go of his cheese and he couldn't let go at that time of meat. But then he read your book and he cried when he read it. He he did and it moved him so deeply and he said i understand now why i'm doing what i'm doing and why i'm so passionate about it so i mean you helped our family directly and i've shared that book with so many of my clients and it's helped them to understand that you need strength when you do this you need conviction um you need all of these things um you need to give yourself the time you need to not try and rush it that it is a journey when you're doing this. So yes, it has helped so many people. Um, One of the, um, when you were talking about, you know, that even though you were okay to die, you were like, it's not my time. Max Gerson had you, he had you by the throat and he's like, it's not your time. You're doing this therapy. And I feel the same way when I'm exhausted from running our businesses and I'm exhausted from meeting clients. I truly feel like I have Max Gerson's hand on my back 
and that he's gently pushing me forward whether I like it or not. I swear that he is um, this, you know, this feisty man out there saying people need to learn about this therapy because it's not just about saving your own health. It's truly about saving the planet as well. When you grow clean food, you can't destroy the water and the soil and the air. I mean, you have to treat it with reverence and respect and love. And you can't um, think that you can dump all these chemicals into the world and, you know, be treating your health well while you're doing this to the planet as well. So for me, when I first started learning about the Gerson therapy, I truly saw it as a way to protect the planet as well. But there is something that you said as well about being an activist. And did you ever read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning? No. No. But there was something that you said. So Viktor Frankl, he was a psychotherapist um, or a psychologist, and he was in Auschwitz. And he survived the Holocaust. But while he was inside... Um, the concentration camps and I mean he was tortured and abused but he noticed that there was something in the people who wanted to survive who needed to keep going and not throw themselves into the electric yes. set. Yes, now I remember. Yes, 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 yes I do. Victor Frankl, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it sounds to me that when you have a purpose you also have that will to keep going and to fight and to live. And do you think that was the case with yourself, that you felt like you, you had this purpose to keep going? And how important is that from a psychoanalyst or psychotherapist perspective for people when they're doing the therapy to also search for that purpose in their life? Well, it depends on your, your worldview, if you like. It depends on whether your inner life is important to you. I hate to use the word spiritual life because people misunderstand it. They think it's some sort of religious nonsense, but it's not. Uh, the awareness of the material world being only one part of reality and that the inner world and your inner development and your attempt to become as highly evolved a human being as possible in this life is just as if not more important. Now, I was very lucky because at the age of 12, I had a sudden insight that there are two worlds running parallel, that there's the material world and there is another one which is inf infinity. I was only 12. And suddenly I knew this, and I don't know why I knew it. <laughs> to this day, I can't tell you. But I just thought, aha, yes. <laughs> and uh, that's when it all started. So it helps enormously if you are not tied down into your material life, which is very important, actually, because we are in this world in order to acquire experience, which we can only do here but not see it as the ultimate reality, because it's not. It's only one part of reality. And what happens within you is at least as important, if not more important, let's say just as important, <laughs> compromise. I can see how going into the therapy with that worldview and that mindset probably also 
allows you to continue with the therapy because then you don't have these fears coming in and you know you cannot once you start I know that you can't stop you're not supposed to stop and that you need a conviction to keep going and you had that conviction to keep going for the two years um, do you think there's some personality types that do better on the Gerson therapy than others? Personality? What do yeah, you personality types. So in, psych- in psychology, you know, and Carl Jung wrote about this. A lot of um, psychologists write about um, Hippocrates even said there's different personality types. And, you know, and I mean, there's so many different types, but a lot of them get categorized into four groups. So I tend to find if I have somebody who's a type A personality, they tend to do much better on the therapy because they're, they come to me and they say, okay, tell me how to do it. I don't even need to read the books. I don't need to understand the science. You just give me the schedule and I'll do it. And then they go off and do it and they do it for, but then I have other clients who come to me and they're constantly questioning, which is a wonderful characteristic, but sometimes they question so much and that they want to stop and they want to try another therapy and then they stop that therapy and they get curious about something else. But what is your feeling about that? You know, when we are trying to help people along the nutritional path, the biggest difficulty is that people are very often emotionally linked to the most dreadful kind of food because that's the way mommy cooked. Now, mommy may have been an extremely good mother but didn't know the first thing about food. And there's this emotional, almost childlike nostalgia for eating the stuff which mommy had put on the table. Well, may God forgive mommy because... (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes she brings up whole generations of people who don't know any better. Now, I find that women on the whole, and I'm not even a feminist, but I find that women on the whole are much more likely, if nothing else, to try something else. And I have many stories from clients of mine and friends, women, who tried to tell their husbands about let's change our food and got the most angry reactions. Mm-hmm. Don't you mess about with my food, yeah. That's one of the difficulties we face. The other one, and I would like to mention this, is the enormous power of the food industry. It's true. Endless deep pockets, advertising, very clever. It's almost a sort of mass hypnosis to make people eat the rubbish which they produce. Do you know, Nicolette, that in Europe they use 3,000 so-called food cosmetics? 3,000, which are meant to replace the flavor and the color and, and the scent of the food which is so denatured that it tastes of sawdust or hardboard hardboard, yeah so we have to put back the stuff and so we have food cosmetics i mean it's it makes me so angry and then people are surprised that they are ill you know affluent society and an awful lot of people are sick most of their lives and obese on top of it all it's bad enough to be sick but to be obese as well oh don't 
don't let me start on this. <laughs> but it is a really important um, subject that you raise because so many people think that they know what is good food, but what they don't realize is that they are prisoners of the marketing. They're prisoners of the food cosmetics that you, these 3000 food cosmetics that are really addictive. And they're also in a way prisoners of their emotions, like you said. So um, being attached to the foods that mom or dad or grandma used to put on the table. And so where they say, well, no, this food is good for me because I crave it, or this food is good for me because whatever reason, it makes me feel good when I eat it. Um, they don't realize that they are victims of these three different things, their emotions, the addictive chemicals in the food, and, um, and, uh, and, and also, and, and the addictive chemicals in the food come out in not just the textures, but the flavors, um, as well as the colors. And so all of these things, and then of course the marketing and the marketing plays on our psyche to make us believe that we need this. So what do you say to people? Um, are you, do you still see clients now? Do what? people still, do you still see clients now? So, so. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. And what do you, what do you say to people when they say, oh, no, no, but I need my meat or I need my, um, you know, whatever it is that they're eating that you know is not healthy for them? What do you tell them? How do you explain it to them? There is an awful, as, as I said before, an awful lot of emotional attachment to food, even if it's catastrophic food. And I find that you have to be extremely tactful. And when it comes to the question of whether a change in your daily food might help to solve, I wouldn't say more than that, help to solve your health problem. The thing is to say things like, well, what about trying it just for two weeks? I'm sure you can do that. And it's going to be quite interesting. And then let's see what happens. Nine cases out of 10, after two weeks, they are better. No longer constipated, no longer putting on weight. Uh, not getting up at one in the morning to have something out of the fridge because what they had eaten was so unsatisfactory that they get hungry by one o'clock in the morning. So if the outcome is even moderately good, people are willing to go on a bit. I see that with my clients all the time as well, that um, we just had a, I just had a client who was in a car accident, two car accidents in 1996. And this mother, she's got a young child, but she's lived in chronic pain, lots of medications, um, mm -hmm. lots of treatment since 1996. And in January, she started the Gerson therapy. And two weeks into it, her whole entire body was free of chronic pain for the first time since 1996. So the results can be very, very fast. And in your case, Beata, when you started the therapy, I remember in your book, you described how all of a sudden you had a lump that that lump in the, that was in your groin um, started to calcify or solidify 
and became this hard mass in your groin. And this is a part of your book that I found very interesting. No, that was much later. Oh, that was that, later. Oh, that was much later, yeah. It got encapsulated. That's the technical term for it. The encapsulated the cells got encapsulated, correct? Yeah, but that was in the second year. What happened in the first year, which was quite spectacular, was when my mutilated leg began to, to grow back. Now, you must imagine, I can't show you my leg. <laughs> um, if you can imagine a, a leg and a large piece like that being cut out of it, so that you have the shin bone in the middle, and then very little flesh on either side, and a skin graft on top of it all. And it was totally useless, as I said before. Anyway, um, one morning I was sitting, that was still in Mexico, sitting on my bed and looking at my right leg. I couldn't believe my eyes because I noticed that some on the right-hand side where this terrible mutilation had taken place, a little bit of flesh had grown back. And I just sat there looking at my leg as if it had been a sort of unicorn or, I don't know, a pink elephant. And when I next spoke to Charlotte and I said it to her, she said, oh, no, my dear, that's impossible. I said, all right, come and look at my leg, which she did. And she said, oh. <laughs> and on the right-hand side of the shin bone, the flesh had grown back. On the left-hand side, it for some reason, I don't know why, it couldn't do it. So I have half a miracle, and I walk on it every day of my life. <laughs> That's amazing. But in Max Gerson's book, like this is not, when I read that, that coincided with what Dr. Max wrote about in his book, um, The Results of 50 Cases, because there were people, cases in there that had had a brain tumor, and their skull grew back. And where there had previously been an indentation. And that, so really, when we talk about the Gerson therapy, it truly is regenerative medicine. And um, I don't know if you had a chance to see the whole video from Charlotte's memorial. Did you get a chance to see it? Yes. Yes. And, wonderful. Yes. And there's the one woman, um, she's from China, and she had lung cancer. And this just happened, you know, a few years ago. And the doctor had to remove half of her lung because of the cancer. And a few months later, her lung grew back. And she's been cancer-free ever since. My husband, this is a wonderful story that most people will not believe, even though it happened to him. But he cut off the end of his finger from front to back. And he, you know, we rushed him to the hospital and his finger grew back six weeks later. And because the doctor didn't stitch it up, he kept it open, but he just put a white foam piece on top of it and bandaged it up. And we made sure he was doing, you know, most of the principles of the Gerson therapy. By this time he was doing coffee enemas, taking the supplements, eating all the food, and his finger regenerated. And even now it's been about seven years, but even the nerves in, on his finger regenerated. That took the most amount of time. 
but his, you cannot even tell when you look at his two fingers which finger got cut off because there's no scar at all. Fantastic. And you know, the body, the body is miraculous. It's trying to rebuild itself. The body wants to live. Exactly. And if we create the right conditions, it will do everything it can to restore itself. Uh, every cell has its own intelligence. It's, it's quite remarkable. I have only realized how intelligent the body is after I almost died. And since then, I treat it with enormous respect. <laughs> exactly. Make quite sure that I, I don't hamper its efforts to rebuild itself and to heal itself. I mean, look, if you cut your finger in the kitchen, you clean it up and you put on a plaster, but it's the body that heals the cut, not exactly. the plaster. Exactly. Yeah. And I think for you, this truly, I mean, it is amazing. I love the story in the book about how your leg regenerates, but the story that happened in the second year of the therapy of how your body encapsulated the cancer cells in your groin. Can you share and let everybody know about that? Because to me, that was also truly shows the miraculous power of your body and that intelligence that it has to keep your body safe and well. Well, what happened was that, of course, I was not very happy to have this thing in my groin. And when I was in Mexico, and then later on, I asked Charlotte if, if we could get it out. And she said, no, not at the moment, because any surgery, however careful and well the surgeon works, some cells would escape. And that's all we need. No, she said, leave it, leave it where it is. And then I began, to, uh, I noticed that it began to, to feel different because I checked it, obviously. I mean, one does. And I could feel that it was getting bigger and harder. And I thought, oh, my God, the cancer is growing. And no, it was growing a capsule around itself. And again, I reported to Charlotte, and she said, oh, that's great. If it's encapsulated, then we can have it removed. So there I sat, sort of looking at my groin. <laughs> and this capsule grew, and it felt quite different. It was, it was hard. Now, what happens is this. When it was big enough, um, it was, and of course, the x-ray showed that it was not, now this is important, it was not grown into the flesh, which a cancer normally does, mm -hmm. but it was sitting on a little stalk. So there was this tiny stalk, and this was the thing on top of it. Hurrah, let's have it out. So I did have the surgery. In fact, I went all the way to Mexico to a hospital which Charlotte recommended because they had some very good surgeons there who understood Gerson. And she said, if you want to have it out, have it there. So I went to this place. It was, it was hilarious because everybody spoke Spanish and I can't speak Spanish. So I didn't know what the people were talking about. 
I felt a total idiot. And um, <laughs> during the surgery, it wasn't a general anesthetic, it was a local anesthetic. So I could listen to this wonderful Spanish conversation. They were sharing jokes. They were laughing whilst cutting me. I thought, really, I, I need a little bit more respect. I mean, for heaven's sake, it's my body. Anyway, <laughs> they took it out. All they had to do was snip the little stalk. And then they took it to the lab and opened it up. And they found a very thick, three millimeter thick capsule. That's quite a bit. Yes, and right. inside was the tumor, and there were some live melanoma cells in it, but they couldn't get out. They couldn't get out, and the therapy couldn't get in to kill them. So uh -huh. I had the capsule, and God bless the capsule, because <laughs> it meant that the last bit of melanoma was gone. And all I have is a very small scar in my groin to to show for all this effort. Good story, wow. eh? That is, yes, I remember being so moved by that story in the book because it really did speak to that innate intelligence that is in our body and that our body just wants to heal itself and it also wants to protect itself from whether it's cancer or toxins and our body knows it's so smart um, and how it does that because ultimately it wants us to live. And for you, that was, you know, in 1981 now, probably, or 1982 yeah. when you had that surgery and you're yes. 95 years old now and you look as sharp as ever, you sound as sharp as ever, which is really, truly remarkable. Um, especially in this day and age when we see things like dementia and Alzheimer's and, um, you know, osteoarthritis and arthritis affecting, you know, so many elderly um, people who are, you know, in their 60s and 70s. And you're here at 95 and going and you're so strong. I mean, you could probably live, it sounds like another 100 years right now. You look so vital and alive. So, Beata, what I'd love to know is, I mean, you've you've you know been around for a while you've seen governments change you've seen food policies change you've seen um, policies around farming and agriculture change um, around vaccinations you've seen so much if you could live for another 80 years and you had the power to change things what what are some of the things that we need to do now that our politicians our citizens need to focus on now um, to really turn things around for our younger generations? Oh, dear. That's a big one. It's a big one. But we need to learn from the best of the best, Beata, and you're one of the best of the best out there. Well, it's a matter of changing the way politicians think about certain vital subjects or to make them think about them because very often I feel that they don't. Every now and then a few doctors write a letter to The Lancet, which is, as you probably know, the very influential uh, journal for doctors about the obesity epidemic, for instance, or 
obese people suffering from malnutrition, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's not, because they are obese on the wrong foods, and so they are suffering from malnutrition. I don't really know, because it would mean a total change of, of worldview for politicians who are more interested in the next election than in food policy. And also remember the enormous financial power of the food industry. A doctor friend of mine said the food industry makes us sick and then it passes us over to the pharmaceutical industry to keep us alive. Well, I think that's absolutely precise. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I got a bit tired of this. It's a sort of hopeless struggle. Look, there are initiatives. There are the more intelligent part of, of the population is thinking in terms of organic food. Organic food growing in, in, in Britain is growing day, year by year more and more. An awful lot of people in Britain have become vegetarian or vegan. Absolutely. Yes. So things are happening. There are little green shoots. Innovation always comes from about 3% of the population, which is the most intelligent 3%. <laughs> what else can I say? There's nothing else, really. <clears throat> I don't know. I only give information when I'm asked. I'm not a missionary. Mm. And the more you, the more you try to convert people, the, the more resistant they become. You know that, don't you? Mm. Definitely. Well, it's why I wanted to have you on our show because of the fact that your story of being diagnosed with melanoma, being treated conventionally with it, then it spread, and then you chose to turn to food as medicine and to use the Gerson therapy. And then the incredible regenerative power of that therapy and what it did in your body. To show that story to people, I think, is huge because melanoma affects so many people that they don't even calculate the deaths from melanoma within the existing cancer statistics. It's almost its own separate statistic because it's so huge mm -hmm. and that it would skew the numbers. And so I think your story is so powerful. Um, and the fact that you, so sharing stories I know is one way that we can do it because when people hear stories like yours, it gives them that inspiration and the knowledge and the motivation to try. Because I think if you, like you said, you just try for two weeks switching your diet and see if you feel better. If you try it, we have a book called Eat Real to Heal, which is a, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a simpler version of the Gerson therapy, but it's for the people who don't have cancer, but who have, who are suffering from obesity and they've tried every diet and they can't lose the weight. They have chronic pain, they have depression, they have diabetes or heart disease. And so it's just a very, very modified version of the Gerson therapy all the same food it's the one coffee enema a day and it's only three juices a day and what i've seen is when people do that 
they still heal because why they've taken away everything that's harming the body and they're still only putting in the things that help the body to heal. So they've, they've gotten out of their body's way. So we, I wrote that book because I saw that people wouldn't do the Gerson therapy when they saw that 13 juices, I have to quit my job. I have to. So I thought, okay, let's just create something that's so much more manageable. So I think your story provides people with some hope. It provides people with, you know, like I said, that inspiration and that motivation uh, to know that you got on a plane and went all the way to Mexico when you were a journalist, you were a researcher, you didn't have to do that, um, but you did because you had this motivation and will to to heal yourself and to live. So I hope other people will take the time to read that story, read your read your book, We'll put it in the show notes um, and that it'll give them that same motivation that it's given my husband and so many clients and myself, because at the end of the day, what choice do you have? You can try the conventional route, um, but did you do, can I ask you if you did chemo? I can't remember if you did chemo for your melanoma the first time. No. No. And this is where people need to know that um, there is a time and a place for chemo for sure, but if you do it, then it does make it harder on the body to use the Gerson therapy because now the Gerson therapy not only has to deal with the existing illness and the existing toxins, but it's the toxins after that. What do you have to say about that, Beata? Chemo has a role when you have to gain time. And if you have to shrink a tumor for some reason and then pull out all the stops and 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 do the nutritional therapy. But chemo has its uses, but it's not a cure. And this is what people have to understand. You can't cure a body which is already toxic, because if it weren't toxic, you wouldn't have cancer, by putting in an awful lot of the strongest chemicals known to man. You can't do that. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds it's a very strange idea. Anyway. Um, I'm not criticizing anything or anybody. I'm just minding my own business. If people ask for information, I'm happy to give it. If they don't ask, I don't give it. And I get on with the carriages. <laughs> and do you still drink juice every day? Oh, yes. And you still live by the Gerson principles? I only eat organic stuff. 80-85% of my food is plant-based, vegetable, fruit, salad. I do eat a little fish. I tried to be vegan and I couldn't do it. On the third day, I felt weak and, and I knew my body was shrieking. So I have a tiny bit of fish or I have a tiny bit of chicken. But when I say tiny bit, I mean, <laughs> I mean a tiny bit. And I have cheese and dairy. And as you can see, I'm reasonably healthy. Your reason, I would say you're quite healthy. I love the pictures of your hands because your hands look just as young as they probably did when you were, you know, 50 years old and before you were diagnosed as well. Um, and so it's incredible to see because we do see so many people in their 70s, 80s, 90s that, I mean, they can't even move their hands. And 
and it looks painful and to not be able to use your hands, I mean, means that you can't do so much in the world um, as well. So, you know, to know that just returning and having an abundance of plants in your diet and keeping your body free of toxins. So by eating organic fruits and vegetables and some grains that if you can, you know, keep your body free of arthritis, even for that reason alone, um, why not try eating this way and living this lifestyle? Um, so Beata, we've been together for an hour um, and I know it's late in the UK right now. It's probably about five, almost six o'clock. Um, what are some, last remaining pieces of advice and I'm asking you to give the world advice here so what are some last pieces of advice that you would like to give out to the world um, with regards to how they live and how they eat or how they think about um, moving in the world to keep themselves healthy it's very difficult because there's an awful lot of echo for you so when you talk to me, I have you and the echo, and that's why I keep asking what you said. I'm sorry about that. It's not your fault. It's just the machine. That's okay. So what was your question? What was your question? Very briefly. Yes. Um, what advice do you have the world? What are some remaining last words that you would like to share with the world right now um, about how to eat or how to think about um, their illness if they are diagnosed and some things that they can think about before they move forward okay the human organism developed over millions of years until it became what we are now until about 200 years ago industrial revolution and all that the body was fed on natural stuff because there was nothing else. People either grew their own stuff or if they lived in a city and couldn't do that, they went to the market and bought the stuff from a farmer who had grown it. And that was fine. And then came modernization, damn it. <laughs> um, and it's, it's especially since the middle of the... 20th century after the second world war so sort of 1950 onwards that the food industry became big and powerful and started doing its own thing which is not what our bodies want so what i would say is the, the closer in fact dr gerson said it very beautifully keep close to the laws of nature and it will protect you he put it more elegantly, but I'm just quoting from memory. That's the only thing we should observe. Remember that your body is the, the, the result of a very long development. Give it to what it was used to over thousands of years. Go back to nature, for goodness sake. Um, it's as simple as that. <laughs> as simple as that. Go back to the laws of nature. Well, I hope I hope that people will listen to you and me. And uh, it was lovely to talk to you. Beata, it was really beautiful to chat with you as well and to be able to hear your story firsthand. 
Um, you are truly one of the most inspiring people that I have met um, who has done the Gerson therapy. I love that you also, I know you say you did it because you were bored that you wrote the book, but I do love that you wrote the book because I have met over the years so many people who've healed from the Gerson therapy, but they tended to not want to share their story to the world. They just wanted to forget that they had been diagnosed with an illness and they just wanted to move forward. But the power of story to help people is so huge and we need people to share their stories in the world so that other people can learn and be inspired to move forward. So I'm very grateful that you took the time to do that, um, that you wrote that incredible book and that you've spent your life um, dedicated to helping so many people. So if people are in Europe, where can they go to do the Gerson therapy, Beata? Because you live in the UK. Well, there is a Gerson Center in Hungary. It has been there for 10 years. It's doing very well. I'm very happy for it to be there. People go there from all over Europe. There are two-week two spells. They, they, they can stay for two weeks and they are taught the theory and the practice of the therapy and they learn how to make the food and then it's up to them what they do when they go home. <laughs> we can't control that. Okay, mm -hmm. wonderful. So if people want to learn more about the Gerson therapy, of course, they can reach out to us at richerhealth.ca. We teach people how to do the Gerson therapy and read Beata Bishop's book, A Time to Heal. We'll put the link there so you can buy it um, in the show notes as well. And please read her book. You can leave a review and a testimonial on the Amazon sites or whatever site that you use to buy the book. Um, and if you do want to reach out to Beata, Maybe just send her a note saying thank you for everything she's done. Because as she says, she's a little young lady, I would say. Um, so you can send your greetings to Beata. Um, thank you, Beata, so much for being on our show. We'll send you the link so you can share it with everybody in your world. And um, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. It was delightful to meet you. And I hope we'll meet again sometime somewhere. <laughs> I plan on so doing a trip to Europe, so I'm going to make sure I reach out to you when I'm over in the UK. Thank you, Nicolette. Lovely to have met you. Yes, bye-bye. Have a wonderful evening. Bye. Bye.